0: Greetings and welcome to this new episode of New Books Network. My name is Joaquin Ribaya Martinez. I am an associate professor of history at Texas State University and will be the host of this interview. Today, we will be chatting with Cynthia Radin about her book, Bountiful Deserts Sustaining Indigenous Worlds in Northern New Spain, recently published by the University of Arizona Press. I am particularly glad to interview Dr. Radin today um, because her influential work, Wandering Peoples, is one of the first history books I read when I was in graduate school. And I have always enjoyed and learned quite a bit from her scholarship. And in recent years, I've had the opportunity to collaborate with her in a, on a couple of projects as we share academic interests in indigenous peoples, borderlands, the environment, etc. So good morning from San Marcos, Texas, uh, Cynthia, and welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for being with us.
2: Good morning, Joaquin. Thank you very much for inviting me to this very uh, pleasant conversation. And I appreciate so much the opportunity to talk about the work and the interests that you and I share and to talk about my book.
0: All right. So Dr. Cynthia Rading is the Rosenhoff Distinguished Professor of History and Latin American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her scholarship is rooted in the imperial borderlands of the Spanish and Portuguese American empires and emphasizes the roles of indigenous peoples and other colonized groups in sharing those borderlands, in shaping those borderlands, transforming their landscapes, and producing colonial societies. She is past president of the Conference on Latin American History, affiliated with the American Historical Association. She has served on the editorial boards of several uh, journals, including the American Historical Review, the Hispanic American Histori- Historical Review, the Americas. Uh, Dr. Radin is President of the Board of Directors of the America's Research Network and is co-editor with Dana Levin Rojo of the Oxford Handbook of Borderlands of the Iberian World. In addition to numerous journal articles, her publications include the aforementioned Wandering Peoples, uh, published by uh, Duke University Press in 1997, Landscapes of Power and Identity, Comparative Histories in the Sonoran Desert, and the forests of amazonia from colony to republic published by duke university press in 2005 borderlands in world history co-edited with chad bryant and paul redman uh, published by palgrave in 2014 and most recently bounty for deserts sustaining indigenous worlds in northern new spain which is the book that we are about to discuss um, published this year by university of arizona arizona press so cynthia Uh, Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, for instance, how you became a historian and where does your interest in in the indigenous peoples of northwestern Mexico come from?
2: Thank you, Joaquin. Uh, The decision to become an historian began with my undergraduate education, uh, where I uh, completed my my bachelor's degree at Smith College. And uh, having lived in eastern United States, uh, I had no previous background in Latin America. But I decided to major in history and to uh, develop two concentrations in early modern Europe and in Latin America. And it was largely through the influence of uh, one of the professors who was at uh, Smith College at the time, Ramon Ruiz, who had a very distinguished career in the history of Mexico. And it was also the time in which we were living. Um, I... Uh, was finding ways to combine music and history in my own personal development and in my intellectual development and I told myself that I wanted to study a developing area of the world. Um, So having studied Latin and French, I then jumped into studying Spanish and my interest in Latin America and in the indigenous peoples of Latin America and with a focus on Mexico came from the opportunities I had to experience life in Mexico directly. Um, during the summer uh, between my junior and senior years, I joined a an American Friends Service Committee, what they called a work camp uh, in Guanajuato, uh, and this is my first experience uh, with people who at the time probably didn't identify as indigenous, but they were certainly ejidatarios, they were peasants in the rural area of Penjamo, of Guanajuato. And then my second really important introduction to, uh, to the region of northwestern Mexico and to environment and to indigenous peoples was through the first Fulbright grant that I had the privilege of holding, uh, which took me to Sonora uh, for the year after I graduated, um, after I completed my undergraduate degree. And then later on, after I received the master's degree, uh, I returned to Sonora uh, with my husband and uh, and we began our family and our, our professional lives there. And I was privileged to be able to work with Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History and a regional center that opened in Sonora. And this was really a a wonderful opportunity to begin to put into practice um, uh, some of the skills and and some of the methods that I had studied both in undergraduate and uh, during my master's program.
0: Excellent. Um, So before delving into the details of the book, um, tell us a little bit about uh, what the process of researching and writing "Bountiful Deserts" was like?
2: Yes, um, it was a combination of um, of archival research, uh, uh, you know, over a period of years, and also visiting directly uh, the area on which this book is centered. Uh, let me explain a little bit. Um, after I worked uh, during the time, I was working at at INA the Instituto Nacional de Antropología e Historia, and I had begun to become interested in what later would be called environmental history through studies that I did in geography at University of California, Berkeley, and then through my work and living in what is the area of the Sonoran Desert uh, in Hermosillo. The first book that you are kind enough to mention came out of my doctoral dissertation, Uh, which I completed then uh, some years later at the University of uh, California in San Diego. And the doctoral dissertation became Wandering Peoples, which centered on what today is central and Northern Sonora in parts of Arizona. And the Wandering Peoples were largely the Oram and Opata peoples of, of that portion of Sonora. And then Landscapes of Power and Identity Um, was my um, adventure into comparative history, keeping one column in northwestern Mexico and turning to eastern Bolivia, where I asked the specific question, what difference do ecology and geography make in historical processes, Uh, comparing the provinces again of Sonora and Chiquitos in eastern Bolivia? And for this book, Bountiful Deserts, I came back to Sonora, but now to the portion more in the south uh, from the Yaqui to the Sinaloa rivers between what today are the states of Sonora and Sinaloa. And to your question about how to research it, it's a combination of archival research again in Sonora, in Mexico City, in the Archivo General de la Nación, in the Biblioteca Nacional, Um, with the Archive, the Franciscan Archive and the the Reserved, the Fondo Reservado, the Reserved Archive in Mexico's National Library. And then, of course, a number of archival and and library uh, collections in the United States and in Europe. I did work in the Archivo General de Indias and in the British Library, um, where there are a number of wonderful maps, Uh, dealing with uh, uh, the Spanish imperial world. This combined with uh, with time spent in the region itself. And it's really been a privilege for me, uh, what what I have done with this book, Bountiful Deserts, is uh, delve more deeply into some of the particular questions of environmental history and also ethnography, and to work directly with indigenous communities in in the region where I've studied. I've been very fortunate to be able to learn so much from indigenous communities in all three of these kind of major books that I've undertaken. In Wandering Peoples, it was more with the Tono Oram uh, of, of present day Sonora and Arizona. In Chiquitos, it was with the Chiquitano indigenous peoples in Bolivia. And here I've really had the closest opportunity to collaborate with indigenous communities in the Maikyo River Valley uh, and to learn from them, to bring to them the work that, some of the information that I found in the archives, to ask them about the names of plants, about some of the toponyms that I found in the archival records to share this material with them and then to learn from them.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I find, uh, extremely interesting, um, as always, your interdisciplinary methodology involving cultural geography, anthropology, archaeology, and so forth. But I think in this book, one of the um, the most outstanding aspects of the methodology is this, this collaborative research that you did with uh, extant communities, right? Uh, in particular, can you tell us a little bit about the Pueblo of Cahuilinpo?
2: Yes, yes, I'm very happy to. Um... I became, well, I was able to visit the Pueblo of Corimpo and began a relationship with uh, two of the people in the uh, gobierno tradicional, uh, the traditional government of Corimpo, which exists um, through the selection of the people themselves and in a kind of parallel fashion with the two municipal governments of the uh, small cities of Navajoa. And Echehoa. Uh, I went there in 2017, invited to give a talk in an encuentro that had been organized by the Instituto Nacional de Anthropologia e Historia and that Gobierno Tradicional in Coorimpo. Uh, Coorimpo itself, as Navajoa, Echohoa, Santa Cruz, Tesia, and Camoa, are today living Towns along the Mayo River, and they were part of the eight mission towns that Mayo indigenous peoples founded together with the Jesuits beginning in the early 17th century. So each of these towns has a very deep historical past, and of course, these were Mayo or Yureme indigenous villages before Europeans came there. And under the organizational kind of umbrella of the Jesuit missions, it's true that that these towns became more populated, more concentrated in population as the smaller rancherias um, came to live in them. And today, these towns have a very similar pattern of there's a town center and then a fairly large number of communities, uh, what they called comunidades or congregaciones um, that that live in the area around them. Uh, the, their configuration now in the 21st century is somewhat more a product of Mexico's post-revolutionary ejido development, but they retain many, many of the traditional elements of, of their historical past.
0: Yeah, this... This notion of the, of building an environmental history from below is, is fascinating, really. So um, before getting into the nuances of the book, um, can you briefly tell our listeners what do you mean by bountiful deserts? Since it seems <laughs> a tautology, no? You know, but there is, there's a good reason to make a distinction between just a desert and the type of bountiful deserts that you're discussing here.
2: Yes, thank you. Yes, the title was intended to be, to kind of catch attention, and it it is, and it, it appears to be, an, an immediate contradiction. Uh, we in the English language think of desert as a place that um, is desolate, that uh, is arid, of course, and, um, and that is lacking in things like water, uh, productive soil, plant life, and animal life. And... Um, in, in Spanish, desierto um, refers a little bit more to a place that is deserted, um, that doesn't have human population. And desiertos can be a tropical swamp, as well as an, an arid desert. Um, here I was using it in, in a kind of paradoxical way to say that the deserts are bountiful because people make them bountiful. Now, the specific geographical region, as I explained in the introduction in the first chapter to the book, the specific geographical region extending from the Yaqui River in the north, in, in again, the southern part of, of Sonora, to the Sinaloa and even the Mocorrio, uh, Mocorrito rivers in the state of Sinaloa, is not literally desert. It is certainly arid land. And this, this is an area that covers the kind of southern borderland of the Sonoran Desert, which is an identified geographical figure that includes Sonora, Arizona, and portions of Baja California. But these are all arid lands that in fact do have a rainy season and do have rivers flowing through them. Uh, The rivers gather their water from the Sierra Madre Occidental and flow from the Sierra, basically from the Northeast to the Southwest, flowing into the Gulf of California. And what distinguishes them is um, what in Spanish is called the monte. Uh, This is a word that is used very frequently, as you know Joaquin, in Spain itself, as well as throughout Latin America, to refer to uncultivated types of vegetation, that can extend from thorn forest to chaparral, to pine and oak forests in the upper reaches of of the Sierra. But these are lands that are not planted in domesticated crops. Nevertheless, they are shaped by human populations that hunt and gather in them, that select plants, that transplant plants, and, uh, and that generally shape these montes. Over the last two and a half centuries or so or so, these montes also have been turned to pasture lands uh, for cattle. And this has um, by both indigenous and Hispanic and later on uh, Mexican uh, ranchers, and, and this has changed much of the composition of the vegetation in, in these areas. One of the questions, Joaquin, that around which I structured the book, is um, how, to, how to research and how to write about these areas that are not completely domesticated or cultivated and not completely wild. Uh, and this is why I chose the four kind of families of plants around which I structured the first chapter.
0: Right. Actually, I was going to ask you specifically about that now. The, the first part of your book, Uh, deals with the cultural resilience of Aboriginal peoples through the production of landscapes. Um, So tell us, uh, actually, tell us briefly who who these native peoples are, the the Yoremen and the Yoremen, and um, how they adapted to the distinct environments of the the floodplains of the Mayo River and also to the Monte.
2: Yes, I'll be very happy to. And in a way, I would like to start with a phrase that I learned from the Mayo peoples of Korimpo, which is Yoremia, Yorekame, Patwe, Maigi, which means we, the Yoreme people, the true Yoreme people, born on the banks of the Maigi River and I think this is a beautifully poetic way to express their sense of identity very much rooted into the place. Mayo actually does come from their language and it means on the margins of, on the banks of. Batwe is river or water. And Yoreme, Yoreme are the Mayo peoples that today extend from the Mayo River south into the Fuerte River into Sinaloa. Yoeme are the Yaqui people um, of the Yaqui River Valley and are very, very well known. Uh, both of these peoples are very well known in the history of Mexico. And there are important communities of Yaqui or Yoeme people who live in Arizona. Um, the, they today say that Yoreme which as in so many indigenous languages sort of means the people, but they give it a very special meaning to say that yoreme are people who are fully human, who know how to live in a good relationship with nature. Um, Now there um, it is thought um, in terms of what we know, and there have been some, some, not as much research, obviously, uh, in the archaeology of this region as in, say, Central Mexico, but through ongoing research done by both North Americans and Mexican archaeologists, uh, some of them associated with the uh, Instituto of Anthropology in both Sinaloa and Sonora, um, it is pretty well established that the ancestors of the Mayo and Yaqui peoples have been in this region for probably 2,000 years. Uh, they've adapted, of course, to different climatic uh, patterns, um, and in the river valleys, um, they developed agriculture probably also as long as 2,000 years ago. They are part of the Uto-Aztecan family of languages, and therefore have linguistic and cultural ties to the Mesoamerican peoples uh, of central and western Mexico. And this is a to me. It is an important dimension of their history that I tried to bring out in chapter two uh, in terms of how the people came here. And, and also the the, um, the cultural exchanges and patterns of migration, but also exchange how maize probably came to this region through a kind of group-to-group experimentation with um, Mesoamerican uh, cultigens like mays. Uh, cucurbits or squashes and beans. Um, and so they they definitely practiced agriculture, probably floodplain agriculture, taking advantage of the really um, prodigious and fertile flows of both water and silt that come down the river seasonally with, with the summer rains. The very first Jesuits who entered this region in the very late 16th and early 17th centuries, all of them in their early letters and reports emphasized the the prodigious productivity of this area. uh, And and all of them emphasized that the indigenous peoples were able to gather two crops a year. Now their adaptation to the monte is equally important and it is something that today the Yureme peoples emphasize. The monte is their pharmacopeia. It is the source of medicine. Uh, it also uh, used to be there, and until very recently, and in a way, still is their source of hunting. Uh, deer are both sacred animals and animals that are hunted uh, for meat and for their hides, uh, as well as other smaller animals. and And there's a whole profusion of plants, um, of cacti, thorn forest, agaves. Um, other kinds of plants that uh, the carrizo, which is very important, that they use for construction materials, for medicinal materials, and as sources of food through their seeds, their flowers, and their roots.
0: Right. So, how how do the the Yuremen, uh define territory and uh, and their own ethnic identity?
2: Well. Um, the Yuremen define their territory, uh, well, they define their identity. Let me begin there, as I said, um, through uh, their, their spiritual belief uh, that Yureme is uh, to have a respectful and, and sustainable relationship uh, with their environment in terms of using that environment but not destroying it. Um, and they do define their territory in rather specific ways. Uh, the length of the river itself, um, which extends for um, uh, several hundred kilometers from, from the Sierra Madre uh, to, um, to the coast of the, the Gulf of California, but also both the Yuremim and the yuemim, uh they don't claim the territory without limits. They, they claim their territory in, certain, in terms of certain mountain ranges and mountain peaks uh, that surround the area, and, um, and, and they, they also are respectful of one another's territory uh, to the north and, and to the south, um, but they do live, at the present time, they live in tension with the private properties of uh, agribusiness that surround their communities, um, and that quite frankly are uh, taking too often a monopoly of of water. Uh, So they do live in a tension with the sort of regimen of private property. And what they are trying to do is to defend their areas of communal property um, around certain resources uh, that include lagunas and include uh, the kind of rivulets that flow into the river itself. Part of what I uh, set out to do in this book, and found the documents with which to do it, is to document the process of the defense of that territory, including the Wasam, what they call the Wasam, which is the river valley and, uh, and the arable land, and the monte, which they call uh, Uya Ania, Anya is world, and in a sense Anya is the concept with which they define their territory. And what I uh, wanted to to lead up to saying is that the way they conceive of their territory is with the expression Itom Anya, our world, our territory, which includes the Wasam, the river valley, Huya Anya, the, the monte, and the, and the word Huya expresses the spiritual value of the monte, Batwe, which is the river, as well as the estuaries and the marine resources of the Gulf of California, which is very important to them, and then Kawi, which are the Sierras. So these are the ways that they define the ecological features and zones and spaces of Itom Anya, our world. And this this concept is used also by the UMM or the Yaki peoples.
0: Yeah, I was <clears throat> I was thinking that um, one aspect of of your analysis of the adaptation of these peoples to their environment is is that you itself it <laughs> allows you to problematize the distinction that people tend to make between nomadic and sedentary peoples. Can you speak a little bit about that?
2: Yes, this was the second kind of major question that I wanted to address in this book, and that is to break down a little bit the binary between nomadic versus sedentary, to say, and and this is what I also did in Wandering Peoples to an extent, to say that many of these people are both, uh, and the two economies, the two ways of approaching their ecology, their ecological entorno, um, their their environment. Are essential to to their survival, both physically and culturally, so that they do have villages, they do have rooted communities. But at the same time, during several months of the year, they uh, go out into the monte, and access to these spaces, to these uncultivated spaces, is as important as uh, their continuing access to the floodplains and the river valleys themselves. And so I uh, I've tried to break down the idea, which in fact, some Mesoamericanists think uh, that northern Mexico is just totally nomadic. Uh, This is not true. Uh, People, uh, uh, indigenous peoples in many parts of northern Mexico are agriculturalists. They are farmers, very successful farmers. And at the same time, they are using a grand, a, a large variety of resources within the spaces that they claim by, by moving through them and by living in them. And those spaces include uh, from the water, in this case, the Gulf of California, deep into the Sierra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all.
0: Utilization of these resources.
2: Yes, yes.
0: Um, you also um, dispel the notion that native peoples. Um, I mean, quite often, uh, one of the most widespread images of native nowadays is the the idea of the the environmentalist indigenous person, right? In what in what ways do you think that people like the Yuremen and the yemen are different from the typical idea that the average American has of an environmentalist.
2: Yes. Um, I, I, I was trying to say that um, our notion of environmentalists, which comes from 20th and 21st century uh, American political activism, in a sense, uh, is something that now is... Um, is, uh, is touching indigenous peoples and that indigenous peoples are participating in, but they do so from their own conceptual framework. Uh, now, I was also making distinction, uh, the book Bountiful Deserts um, is itself centered in the 17th and 18th and early 19th centuries, but I do continually um, make the effort in the book to, to bring its relevance to the present day. But I was making a slightly uh, uh, historical uh, distinction between this earlier period uh, so that we don't expect people to go around with signs and placards talking about save the environment. But the way of living is bespeaks an environmental perception. And again, it's a perception that comes back to this idea of itom ania, and uh, and in this sense, um, I will say that I was um, also found very useful the ideas developed by a number of anthropologists. One of them is Tim Ingold, um, who, in his 2000 book published in, in 2000, uh, writes about dwelling in a given landscape, the skills to live in it. And um and the purposefulness of, of living in it. And he he's saying that indigenous peoples uh don't separate their conceptual framework from the very material experience of living in a landscape, uh, living in a place which they then shape into landscapes. And this is the message that I also uh developed in, in the ways in which I researched and then wrote about bountiful deserts.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in part two of the book, titled uh, Internal Frontiers and the Production of Knowledge in Northwestern New Spain, you emphasize change and adaptation and conflict. In in what ways did the Spanish intrusion transform the livelihoods and the landscapes of Sonora and Sinaloa, and how did the natives adapt uh, to those changes or, or actually participate in those transformations?
2: Yes, of course, the coming of, um, of, of Spanish colonialism did work um, profound and lasting changes in this region, um, as, as in, in nearly all of New Spain. But the way you phrased your question is the way I have also tried to present this, it is not simply a history of victims and victimizers. This is a history of the development of a colonial society in an imperial borderland, uh, in which indigenous peoples participated. And I emphasize that, uh, throughout the period in which I am studying and into well into the 19th century, the indigenous peoples are demographically the majority. They are the people who have the most direct knowledge of this region. And, uh, from the beginning of Spanish exploration into this region, which I cover in chapter three, and then into the second part of the book, uh, the in, the Jesuit missionaries, and uh, even uh, the, the Spanish mining enterprise, which becomes very important in this region. They depend upon indigenous labor, and they depend upon indigenous knowledge of the region and its resources. Um, and I do see the missions... Uh, the Jesuit missions, which have a very important imprint for both the Yoreme, Yaki, and Yoreme, mayo peoples. Uh, but this is, the missions could not be, were not simply a blueprint that the Jesuits imposed on the people and on the landscape. The Jesuits had to be, the, the missions had to be negotiated and negotiated between the Jesuit missionaries and uh, the indigenous peoples. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but the the Mayo indigenous peoples accepted the missions after going to the northern river valleys of what today is Sinaloa and observing the missions there. They waited and watched and then made their decision to invite the Jesuits in. The history for the Yaqui peoples is more dramatic. (laughs) Um, There were pitched battles between uh, the the Yakimi Yaqui, um, uh, warriors and um, and Spanish forces. Spanish forces allied with other indigenous peoples because it should be said that even though they shared uh, uh, linguistic commonalities and cultural things in common, these different groups were at war with one another. Uh, but finally, the Spaniards had to negotiate. The, the Yakis uh, defeated them three times And they finally had to negotiate. And what I write in the book is that I think the Yaquis saw, the Yueme or the Yaquis saw that they were winning the battles but losing the war because more and more of these indigenous peoples uh, that surrounded them and to the south of them were lying with the Spaniards. And so they also made a judicious, a counseled, a negotiated decision to agree to allow Jesuit missionaries to come into their zone. Uh, now, there's no question that Spanish, the Spanish mining economy, which did demand labor, Spanish uh, livestock raising, and the beginnings of Spanish landholding, uh, did change ecological relations in the region, probably uh, demanding more and more of the water table And what I uh, detail, what I research in some detail, particularly in Chapter 5, is the slow but gradual process of the privatization of the monte through the Spanish um, legal system of composición, which allowed Spaniards, in effect, to take out title to land that de facto they were occupying with their livestock. but. An important part of this whole process, and by which we can learn so much, is that indigenous pueblos were represented in these legal documents, and the indigenous agricultural lands and a portion of the monte that surrounded them were recognized as belonging to the indigenous peoples by the Spanish colonial state. And they learn, the indigenous peoples learn to manage these legal institutions To defend their land and through their speech which admittedly is captured in spanish transcription but through their presence in the visible public measurement of these lands we learn about the kinds of resources that were especially important to them and again in practice how they defined and defended their territories
0: right In the 18th century, though, there were some changes, right, in the the allocation of resources um, that brought about the so-called Yaqui and Mayo rebellions in the
2: mid-18th
0: century, roughly. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes, yes. Uh, And uh, my sixth chapter, The Monte in Flames, (laughs) in which I (laughs) borrowed a phrase that I borrowed from Juan Rufo, El Llano en Llamas. Uh, El Monte en Llamas. Um, This is, um, in a sense, this chapter is the most narrative of the chapters in the book. Uh, And I, I do in it tell and retell the story of what was a major rebellion that occurred between 1739 and 1741, and that was building up through the 1730s. And uh, you have captured perfectly well, Joaquin, what I try to express in the book. I relate the rebellion to what came before in the chapter before, which is the increased pressure, the increased pressure on land and water resources coming from now what is population growth uh, among Spaniards, among indigenous peoples and and the growth of cattle, uh, livestock herds. And also one of the things that I emphasize, other authors have written about this rebellion and other authors have come to much of the same conclusions. But I emphasize a little bit more than they have that an an important turning point in the Jesuit enterprise in this whole region was to divert resources from these missions, particularly the missions of the Yaquis and Mayos, in the province which at the time was called Ostimuri, crossing the Gulf of California and diverting resources of foodstuffs, livestock, and people, laborers, to the missions that the Jesuits f- felt were so important to them in Baja, California. And the, the missions in Baja, California were in much more arid lands and really could not sustain themselves as concentrated villages. And the, the Yakis and Mayos seem not to have objected to this. And in fact, for them, it was an opportunity for mobility. Uh, it also enhanced kind of their importance in this whole uh, colonial enterprise until their region began to suffer from drought and from scarcities. And, and it all, also came down to a question of the Yakis and, and Mayo leaders of their village councils, um, which are the people who we basically see in the the documents, they were also asserting their capacity to control and to make decisions over the disposition of the harvests and also over the liturgy and the religious cycle within the missions. And what I do want to emphasize, and I emphasize in the book, this rebellion was not a rejection of Catholicism it was not a rejection, even of the colonial um, administrative uh, regime. It was, as I say, a uh, resounding outcry. It was a demand to renegotiate that colonial arrangement, uh, and and an assertion that we now want to control the economic and the social and the cultural lives of our towns. These were people who had been steeped in Catholicism for for generations, uh, since the early 17th century for a century and a half, and also the indigenous leaders had a very strong sense that they were vassals of the king, and they had a direct line, and as vassals of the king, they had a direct line to the royal authority and to make their claims upon the Spanish state um, within, within their region. And they also had, and this is something that has continued with the indigenous peoples in this region and I think throughout Mexico and even in other parts of Latin America, a very strong sense of local governance. And what they were defending was the integrity of being able to select their own officers at the level of local governance. Right. So what have
0: been, uh, in your view, the the long-term effects of the processes that you analyze in the book? For instance, um, what is left of the Aboriginal and colonial landscapes that you discuss, and and how do contemporary Yoreme and Yoreme communities respond to environmental threats and political disruptions?
2: Okay, that's a big question, Uh, but I want to take I want to take the first part first. I think sure. much remains, much remains of the indigenous and colonial roots in this region. Uh, the symbols of the cross, the very, uh, and all the houses um, uh, among both the Yohemim and yuremem, uh especially among the Yohemim, all the houses have a patio cross. And this cross is a very important center for family life, uh, for the preparation of food, and also for the kinds of religious ceremonies that take place within the houses, what they call pachco, um, which are um, ceremonies that uh, involve um, the, the reverence to the saints, but also involve dances and songs that bring blessings and, and, and prosperity and health. These largely have to do with ceremonies to bring or to restore health, and they are uh, household ceremonies as well as community ceremonies. The rather famous Lenten and Holy Week, very elaborate rituals, are the development of Catholicism reworked and maintained by the Indigenous peoples themselves. And, this is, um, and I was able to find ethnographic references to this even in the 18th century documents. And this was also one of the aspects that I tried to emphasize in, in my history of the 1740 rebellion was that the liturgical life and the religious symbolism continued along with it. Uh, this is a very important part of Yueme and Yoreme life today. Also living with the river, uh, continuing to practice agriculture um and uh and defending the resources of of the monte. The changes that have come, the really great inflection points that the Dureme and Yueme peoples today are very much aware of are really have really occurred within the last century. And these are the post-revolutionary developments from the revolution um Uh, the Mexican Revolution of 1910 and its outcome. Um, These two river valleys underwent very intense commercial development and exploitation from the late 19th century into the 20th century through sophisticated hydraulic technology, uh, the construction of dams on both rivers that have diverted water into what is the commercial agriculture of this area. Um, and and within the modern economy, uh, this area is part of the breadbasket of Mexico. It was the area in which, in the 1940s, the Mexican Green Revolution was developed, um, in which ejidatarios participated. And some of these ejidatarios are, in fact, indigenous people. But at the same time, the the struggle, and particularly after the reversal of land reform, that came uh, at the end of the 20th century with the presidencies of Salinas de Cortari uh, and and the the turn to neoliberalism uh, crossing into the 21st century. These have brought great hardship to the indigenous ejidatarios and to the indigenous peoples, and some of them are in Coorimpo, who have chosen to maintain more a communal approach to land than to enter into the ejidos themselves. But both have suffered um, uh, the aggressive advancement of private agriculture, private agribusiness that I referred to earlier in our conversation. And as happens in many parts of Mexico and in Latin America, the, the threat to the continued communal life of the people today comes from the fact that they can no longer support themselves with traditional agriculture. They do not have the resources of land and water to do so. Many are working in these maquiladoras or these assembly plants that are now concentrated in Navajoa. Men and women uh, have to go into wage labor to support their families, which as also has happened in the United States, uh, with hardworking, um, working-class people who receive a very low salary. Um, all the adults are working. This leaves the children uh, with less of a uh, supported family life. There is much concern about this. And this is what I've learned by continuing to visit and continuing to collaborate uh, with the people in, in Uh And if there's time, I can tell you a little bit about the work we're doing now um, but to which I'm contributing in a very modest way uh, and work that has really been undertaken by the traditional government of Kowarimpo in an attempt to shore up the family life and the community life.
0: Please tell us more about that.
2: Well, um, the, um, the modest contribution that we are making through the Americas Research Network uh, and you were kind enough to say at the beginning of this, uh, I'm on the board of directors of the America's Research Network, and we have devoted uh, some of our funds to a project of language revitalization. Um, and this has come about through uh, a book to which I was introduced by one of the members of the Corinto Town Council, that the the town of Corinto, with the help of some of the NGOs in in Mexico and in Guadalajara, published uh, 10 years ago in 2011 and brought out a second edition in 2014, uh, which in Spanish uh, reads, Una espina es un bosque de advertencias. A thorn is a forest of warnings or lessons. And this was a series of conversations um, gathered over two years among seven uh, counselors of Corimpo, both men and women, uh, and then laboriously written down by one of the council members and written down in Spanish. And it is an utterly beautiful book that expresses philosophy, uh, the, again, this relationship with nature, and that insists on the importance of good governance. And the phrase that I recited to you uh, at the beginning of my book, lloreme, llorecame, Batwe Mayuamaki comes from that book. So um, I thought <laughs> I thought that this existed in the Yoremnoki language. Uh, it turns out that it doesn't. But in consultation with um, one of the council members uh, who is herself a school teacher, I said, Would you be interested in trying to recover this or produce it in Yoremnoki? And we met with some of the, the elders in some of the communities that surround Coarimbo that are part of its, its kind of political jurisdiction. And they said, yes, that they would want to do this. And these are people who, um, people our age Joaquin, uh, who do speak the language. Um, but of course, as this happened with so many of, of indigenous communities, the young children who go to school tend much more to speak in Spanish. Um, so we have been able to begin uh, producing uh, small passages from the book in yoremnoke both in written text and in recorded voice. And we have begun, it's not quite systematic, but we've begun workshops and little after-school uh, classes for children uh, in the homes of some of the women that, that live in the communities, uh, to begin practicing a little bit more uh, the language of yoremnoki. And this is something that we want to continue with them. And they see this as part of their effort to strengthen and reinforce the Yureme identity and also as an, a contribution to their efforts to defend their territory.
0: Wow, oh, that's a, a terrific initiative. Um, well, Cynthia, thank you very much for your explanations. Uh, what are you working on now? Do you have any ongoing research projects or prospective projects?
2: Well, uh, two things. And, uh, and just let me say that, that the effort really is coming from the Gurame people. And we and the America's Research Network are finding ways to, to network with uh, similar efforts in um, in Mexico through uh, CSS, for example, the the Center for Research in, in Social Anthropology in Mexico. Um, and to find ways to get funding to continue and to expand this program. So this is one of the things that this book and the experience of doing it have led me into. And one of the things that I want to continue that's very important to me is the collaboration with uh, these indigenous communities, sort of in the nucleus of Cobrimpo, uh, the people that I now consider my friends, um, and and also to, to be able to contribute to this, to this work. Um, And uh, also through the contacts that I've made in the National University UNAM uh, in in Mexico, I'm continuing to participate in collaborative publications, um, some of them dealing with Jesuit science and others of them dealing with this work. Uh, with the people in Corrimpo. And the collaboration that I'm doing with you, Joaquin, and the book that you are editing is also for me a very important part of uh, my continued work in this area and my professional development. Um, And I'm also um, working on a project that I've come into returning to, um, which is to explore some of these same themes for the colonial period of Southeastern New Mexico in the area that was called the province of Salinas, um, that is east of the Rio Grande and the major uh, pueblos there, an area that combined Humano and Tompiro indigenous peoples, also a borderland, and also an area that is at the same time semi-nomadic and sedentary. So uh, I look forward to continuing archival research on that. It also is an area that has been much studied, but I'm combining what is known about that region through archaeology, uh, through uh, ethnohistory and environmental history. And then I want to expand the archival base uh, for, ask, for answering some questions about this region in uh, the 17th century prior to the famous Pueblo Revolt, but also seeing its chronological and spatial relationships uh, farther back in time, a little bit forward in time. And this area, which sometimes is called the Galisteo Basin, its relationship to the Rio Grande Valley and then eastward into the Southern Great Plains.
0: Right. A lot of uh, Comanche rock art in the Galisteo Basin, by the way.
2: Yes, yes. I want to learn much more about this from from you.
0: <laughs> so it has been a pleasure to chat with you, Cynthia, as usual. Thank you very much for sharing with uh, our audience of New Books Network some of the nuances of your book and your research. Uh, good luck with your new projects. I'm looking forward to reading about the Salinas Pueblos. And uh, I look forward to interviewing you again soon.
2: Thank you, Joaquin, very much for giving me this opportunity. And I thank all of our listeners, and I look forward to more communication and to sharing my work and to learning from all of you. Thank you, Joaquin. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Cynthia. And to all of you, many thanks for listening to New Books Network. Kindest regards, and I'll say goodbye for the present.